You're listening to The LaunchCast, the podcast about leadership, business, life, and growth with me, your host, George Andriopoulos. It's like food for your ears. Fabrizio, you know what? We always talk about leadership here. We never talk history. And I know that you are a student of history. So let's let's talk a little history. Can you name one important thing that happened in 1969? Nothing? Man, you are the worst. I'm going to give you a few. In 1969, Woodstock happened. The 747 Jumbo Jet made its debut. The Beatles had their last public performance. And Swanson Health started to produce quality vitamins and supplements right from the heart of America in 1969. Guys, this episode is sponsored by Swanson Health. Fabrizio, give me some 60s pop rock stuff. Yeah, that's kind of Beatles-y walk-in-the-park music. Swanson Health is the only company to offer the full spectrum of wellness products for mind, body, and home. From quality vitamins and supplements to cruelty-free beauty items to eco-friendly home products, Swanson Health is here to keep you healthy. And how do they do that? They back everything by strict quality standards with the Swanson Quality code swanson brand vitamins and supplements are crafted in the usa made with unsurpassed purity and potency if you want to try any of swanson health's great products for yourself use code launch 20 for 20 percent off on swanson.com that's the launchcast very own promo code launch 20 on swanson.com now fabrizio t- do something right shut the music off man come on at this time i'm going to ask that you Fasten your seatbelts. Launch sequence. Launch sequence activated. Launch sequence activated. Five, four, three, two, one. Woo! Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the launch cast. 29 episodes, I still have goosebumps. Episode 129, it is part three of How to Be a Human Being, the protest series. It's another good one today, another panel. But first, as always, it's the Launch Dad himself bringing you your favorite podcast on the planet. Oh, you know it's true. And we're doing it as the beat drops. Into the black hole. Guys, thanks for joining me today. Episode 129. We have a special episode today. I want to give a little brief intro here before we jump in with our incredible guest today. Um, you know, this is part three of this How to Be a Human Being uh, series that we're doing revolving around the murder of George Floyd. We're revolving around racism in America, Black Lives Matter, just having these uncomfortable conversations. Um, uncomfortable for everybody. I can speak to how uncomfortable this is as a white man having a conversation like this. Uh, you know, it it's weird. It's uh, It's hard. Um, there's a lot of looking at the mirror when, when you have a conversation like this, looking into the mirror, looking at, uh, things you've done in the past, things other people have done that you've observed that you've been okay with. 
and didn't act on um, a lot of self-reflection involved in this. And so, you know, in putting together these panels, you know, this is something that you have to, to do really thoughtfully, right? You, you bring people on the show, not uh, gratuitous members of a panel, not like, Hey, I want to have one black man and one black woman and one white woman. And no, it's about bringing people on that will have a diverse conversation that will talk about two different opposing sides of a conversation and hopefully some education happens, right? Something happens in the conversation that sparks growth in somebody. Uh, and that's what these panels are really about. And for myself as the moderator to come on here and not only host this, but to put thought and work into, you know, questions that will spark conversations and, and maybe spark some change in, in the minds of people that are, you know, potentially not, uh, in the right mindset, um, you need support. You need the people that will come on and, and, and sort of help you do the damn thing, right. Help you to progress and, and create some change. And so, um, you know, I will say that we, we have two guests on today. Uh, we had, um, two more guests that were scheduled, uh, for today, um, up until today were scheduled and, and pulled out, um, and, you know, this isn't about shaming people, but I will say one thing that as white people, right, who, who want to be allies um, that are professionals out there that have influence, when we commit to something that is scary, a conversation that is not necessarily comfortable for us, but we're doing it for the right reasons, we knew in our hearts in a, in, in, in a solitary moment when something was agreed upon that it was the right thing to do and that you could make a change and then to have a change of heart, you know, on, on doing the thing. Um, it's a tough thing. You know, I, I support people's right to have an opinion and, and to be neutral, but man, how are we going to do the thing if we're not stepping up? right? We don't all have to step up. It's not a rule, but, but when we do step up, we have to commit and we have to be accountable for what we're doing. Right. And so the panel continues on. This is the launch cast. We don't stop for anything. We have two incredible people on the panel and we're going to have some conversations. Um, you know, I wish there was some more parts of the conversation that we can include in here to have, you know, thoughtful discussions. Um, but it is what it is, right? We're going to move on. That's my little piece. I'm going to say now I'm going to bring these two wonderful people up. Hang on. As I put them on screen, there we go. Those faces. Uh, let me do a brief intro and then I will, uh, let these two take it over. So, um, first we have all the way on the right. We have Hannah get it you. Hannah is, excuse me, a Brooklyn-based designer. Uh, she started Bole Road Textiles out of a desire to merge her love of Ethiopian handwoven fabrics with her career in interior design. During her 11 years at a major New York City architecture firm, Hannah realized her affinity for vibrant colors and graphic patterns was a direct result of her upbringing in a home filled with amazing traditional Ethiopian textiles. Her designs for Bole Road are an homage to that cultural 
inheritance and a reflection of her own personal global modern aesthetic. Uh, Hannah was actually born in Addis Ababa, right? Is that right? Okay, good. Um, uh, in Ethiopia. After a few years uh, in Montreal, her family settled in New York. Uh, she graduated as a graduate of Cornell University with a degree in interior design. Hannah was formerly an associate principal at Studios Architecture in New York City. And during her time there, she helped design the flagships and headquarters of some of the city's most prominent companies. Th Hannah, thank you so much for being here. And just unmute, guys. <laughs> it's all good. Thank you, and thank you for, for having me. All good, all good. Uh, right in the middle, we have Dr. Paul Prosper. Uh, I have known Paul since childhood. Paul was born in Kingston, Jamaica, and moved to New York at the age of 10. Paul finished up high school at the Fork Union Military Academy, an all-boys boarding military high school in Virginia. Uh, he then attended the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina, and upon graduation, from the Citadel, he was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the United States Air Force. Uh, he has since received his master's in human relations, his doctorate in management. Dr. Prosper is now an active duty major and is a senior director on the Air Force's $330 million mighty E3 Sentry Airborne Warning and Control System. Uh, Paul was an assistant professor of management in the management department of the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado, up until September 2019. Um, his teaching areas of expertise were organizational behavior and human resource management and is a certified senior professional in human resources uh, by the Human Resources Cert Certification Institute. Paul also runs Prosperous Investments, LLC. It's a business real estate investment company that also has a tremendous outreach program that provides scholarships annually to graduating high school seniors. Dude, that's a mouthful. Thank you for being here, Paul. Thanks for having me, George. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. Um, so, guys, I want to I want to jump into uh, the conversation. Um, you know, we we talked prior to. Uh, this panel about um, some of the things that I wanted to discuss, but I really want, you know, you guys to, to be able to, um, uh, to talk about the things that matter to you. I reached out to you guys, uh, Paul, I reached out to you just because I, I've known you for so many years and I know that uh, on social media, since you've been on the other side of the country for so long, um, I have, I've never seen um a situation like this, like the murder of George Floyd, similar situations, which unfortunately have occurred way too many times. I've never seen one of these situations go by without you being vocal, being an activist and, and being a voice for the community. And so you were one of the first people that I thought of for this. Uh, Hannah, you were recommended by a mutual friend of ours um, as somebody that has not only embraced her culture and made it a part of her work, but that feels so strongly and has, uh, you know, tremendous ideas with how to sort of bring this activism into the business world, which we'll talk about later on. Um, I think where I want to start, if it's okay with you guys, is I, I was sort of checking out the social media profiles, and I happened to see from each of you um, – posts that I really think speak to who you guys are, especially with your stands in, in these situations. So I'm going to start with Hannah. Um, Hannah had a, a post through Bolay Road Textiles that said, hi, everyone. I usually uh, 
do a sample sale on Fridays, but I'm going to postpone this week. To all the new faces, I'm Hannah Getachew, founder of Bolay Road Textiles. I'm an interior designer and Ethiopian American. I started Bolay Road out of a love for textiles and my heritage. We just celebrated our five year anniversary and I recently shared our journey here um, with the hashtag. I have been overwhelmed this past week, mostly with fear and anger. And recently I've been overwhelmed with your support. I've never received so many followers, orders, messages, and press inquiries. And while I want to rejoice, it's bittersweet. With each message, I've welled up with tears and felt an ache in my stomach. I'm grateful and even excited, but I wish a black man didn't have to die for me to be seen. On the other hand, so many black creatives and activists are going, are gaining long-deserved recognition. Some businesses are even being saved. Perhaps this movement is a forest fire that will allow new seeds to grow. Thanks for joining me on this journey. Talk to me a little bit about that post and, and what this movement, this point in time has meant to you. Uh, yeah, you're really, you're really starting hard. <laughs> I'm just, I got emotional just listening to what my words, because it, it took a really long time for me to compose that post. Um, you know, I, one, one black creative described this time as emotional whiplash. And I think that hit the nail on the head because the week after George Floyd died, I feel like collectively the black community was grieving, you know, and it was an incredibly difficult time. Every time a black man is murdered on TV, it's very public. It sends shutters through every black family's home. And I remember looking through social media that the weekend after, and I knew the situation in my home. My home was tense. We were grieving actively. Um, and it seemed like a lot of my white friends were just completely removed from this situation. It was business as usual. It was the usual brunch and house prep, you know, and I thought, wow, so this is, this is the difference. I feel like I feel like my, my white friends and maybe the broader white community really doesn't understand that when something like this happens, it affects every black person. And I feel really, because whether it's known or not, every black person in America has had a situation, a run-in with the police. You know, every yeah. ma male member of my family, every, every black friend that I've had, it's just a part of our life. And I don't think that that is wide known, right? Yeah. And so the week after comes this, these wave of social media uh, act, like uh, initiatives. You know, there was the Blackout Tuesday that happened simultaneously with Amplified Black Voices or Melanated Voices. Different platforms had different initiatives and all of a sudden it became this big movement to promote black businesses and in one week I had more orders than I'd had left. I mean I had seven thousand seventeen thousand new followers. I mean you know what it's like to be an entrepreneur. We grind so hard. We work 
every day to get to where we're going. You know, it's not easy being an entrepreneur. It really tests every aspect of your personhood. And to all of a sudden receive all this accolade in the midst of this deep grieving, you know, it, I couldn't, I couldn't revel in the moment. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't jump for joy, even though this is the, like, this is a moment I've been working and fighting and praying for my entire five years of having this business. I did not envision it happening, happening this way, you know? I did not envisioning envision it happening at the expect like this came from a man being murdered, a black man being murdered on TV in a very gruesome way. Um, and this is kind of a, like part of a tsunami that came after it. And it was just a it was just a, a huge mix of emotions. And I and I still don't know how to how to process it, you know? I still can't, I still can't uh, wrap my head around all this newfound success. Um, it feels, it feels like I'm, I'm stepping, I'm, I'm stepping on someone to get to where I'm, you know what I mean? It feels, yeah. um, it doesn't feel earned. Um, at least not in the way that I perceive, that I perceived yeah. reaching this point in my business. Yeah. Um, you know, something, and I want to get into this a little bit later, but, um, that attention, uh, and and I would love to see if you kind of have any idea, um, as we get into that later, if you kind of have any idea of what the breakdown of these new followers and these new purchases are from, because, um, I've seen a lot of activity, um, as of late. You know, and, and we're going to always talk about primarily social media because that's what we we see on, on the surface, right? Um, and the the motivation of the activity um, is something that I've really been questioning whether the motivation matters as long as, um, you know, that person is now an ally, right? Uh, because as a white person, I could tell you that I know people that are motivated out of guilt just for being white, Right. Um, and other people are just activated now that weren't activated before. Uh, and other people are just jumping on the bandwagon, you know, ton of people, whatever, you know, if, if there's an ally, um, you know, if they can understand that they, if they jump off the bandwagon, eventually that everything will go to exactly where it was again. Um, and so, you know, I, I'd love to know from you with seeing that. Does the motivation matter? It's so funny that you asked that because that is exactly what I was curious about. That's exactly where my unease came from. You know, what is the true intention behind all these people that are placing orders? Um, one of my, my, my business coach, she posted, uh, she posted this quote from someone that does racial trauma work. And basically saying that if you're just placing an order, liking a black-owned business, without really doing the work of investigating your role in systemic racism, whether it's um, intentional or unintentional, if you're not doing a little bit of self-inquiry and self-examination, then you're 
bypassing the whole point of this movement. You know, yeah. that's really offloading your guilt through dollars. You're Venmoing your guilt away. Yeah. Um, PayPaling your guilt away. And you're not really getting to the heart of it. Yeah. And I think that's what bothered me the most, you know, um, the true intention behind the purchases, the likes, the followers. Yeah. Yeah. Paul, I'm going to move on to you. Um, same deal, right? Uh, I, I've always watched your activity during, during these moments and I have, um, sadly just, you know, knowing you for, for so long, sadly seen a, a shift in, um, uh, the vibe coming from you on social media to, to in, in these situations where it's just a heartbreak and, and anger. Um, and you know, for a friend to see that it's just, it's sad that this is the world and that somebody could be, um, internally changed so much, uh, you know, as these things just keep happening, keep happening, keep happening. Um, and, and the cycle will never break. Uh, you put a post up that I thought was really, really, um, important and of course and i didn't say this before i should of course always start with this you know you're you're a member of of the u.s military so thank you thank you for your service first of all um this post is specifically related to that you wrote i have deployed around the world to fight terrorism never thought i would have to get out to fight terrorism against black people right here in the usa talk to me about that all righty well, I appreciate your, your support for the U.S. military, George. And um, one of my favorite quotes ever, I was a keynote speaker for the Peterson Air Force Martin, Martin Luther King celebration a couple years ago. And I found a quote from him, and the quote was, worry not about the words of your enemies, but the silence of your friends. And that quote to me just speaks millions it ties back to what Hannah said about the silence in her circle. People who should be close to you, supporting you, talking to you, but you're just looking around like y'all acting like this is a regular day and it's not, you know, and friends should recognize that. And um, yeah, that post was just acknowledging the fact there's just so many contradictions in this country <laughs> over the past, before the country even started, going back to 1619 up to 1776, the amount of contradictions that are there. And, um, you know, you read what we say, terrorism is a worldwide issue and it doesn't exist here. But if you get into the books and you do the research, it's been happening here since 1619, and you would never know that unless you remove that lens that we get fed info that it's uh, a foreign problem. It only happens in these third world countries. Um, however, anyone that reads the history can see that black people have been terrorized in this land since 1619. Native Americans have been terrorized in this land since 1619. And um, you talked about your friend, tired of being the tour guide of racism 
to people. Yeah, I, I understand that as well. And I just tell people to read books. There's so many books with the truth out there. And um, so that's really what I was getting at with that post. Te domestic terrorism is um, usually uh, whitewashed here in the United States. And even recently where someone went after Antifa as being a terrorist organization. However, no one knows who leads Antifa, whether they have dues, whether they have a membership, but they're a terrorist organization. However, there are multiple white supremacist organizations, KKK, right here in the United States have been in existence with scrolls of membership, with records of dues, with chapters all over the country, with crimes, deaths, murders, hanging, lynchings on their books, known. However, no one seems to think that they're terrorist organizations and wants to go after them. So that was just behind my post that it's been happening in this country for a long time. Um, George Floyd is nothing new. And uh, so that's where I was going with that. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, if somebody could look at a timeline of, of your posts o over the years, and this is something that I was doing the other day, knowing that you were coming on here, um, it, it sort of has taken this vibe of like, it's almost like you're 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 trying to shake somebody. Like, are are you kidding me? Right? Like, like are you not seeing this? You know, and and it's such an obvious thing. You know, the systemic racism uh, within the system. Um, and I think where I'm seeing, you know, guys, what what I want to do with this, and and I've made this no secret, is I'm trying to activate people here with this. Right? I'm trying to educate uh, the people that are a little ignorant right now, and I hate to. I don't like to call out people and use, you know, words like that, but especially as a moderator that has to be unbiased here, but, but it's ignorant uh, to not realize the systemic racism um, and the flaws in the system. Now, where I find this really interesting nuance is that um, I don't think some, I don't think people are educated to it, right? Uh, now, whether it's um, uh, purposeful ignorance or accidental ignorance, that's something that people need to look at themselves about, um, you know, to sort of realize, you know, how to grow to the next step. But, you know, w when when you look at over the years and, and look at a situation like this with George Floyd and, and you're not shocked by it, right? It's nothing new. Um, th that's horrible. That's horrible that it's just another day in the life of America. And we're better than that, or at least I think we could be. Um, but how we get there, you know, that's the big question here. So what I want to talk to you guys about a little bit is Paul mentioned before, I mentioned this last week on the show that uh, a, a friend of mine who's a, uh, you know, a, a leader in the black community here in New York um, had said this great line to me. He said, George, I'm tired of being white people's tour guide to racism. Uh, Hannah and I had a little bit of a conversation before. I want to talk about this for a minute from two different perspectives. So I'll start with Paul. Paul, talk to me about how you feel about that. Are, are you sort of in that same boat where you're just 
tired of, of having to guide people or where, where do you lie in this right now? Great question. Um, I'll start with earlier. You talked about talking about race as being uncomfortable. I personally feel zero discomfort talking about race. Reason being, usually when I get into those conversations, I know everything I have to say is based on fact and history, objective statistics, and you really can't argue with that. And there's no reason for me to feel uncomfortable about that because it's it's fact, it's factual. You can look it up, you can read about it. These examples and things that I talk about really happened over and over and over again. So there's really nothing uncomfortable for me to talk about. Um, as far as getting tired of it, 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 it does start dragging sometimes. Um, when you have to deal with the ignorance or people who come in not open to a open discussion and usually now to the point i'm to the point where if somebody wants to engage in dialogue with me i have my few baseline questions that i'll ask for example hey what was the civil war about what do you think and if they can't even say what the Civil War was about, that it was about slavery, or if they're deflected, it was states' rights or economics, when we know it was states' rights to have slaves, and it was about ending the economic system of the South, which was based on slavery, that, that's just my baseline. And if I'm dealing with someone who's on that mentality, I'm not even gonna have the conversation with them. I will just respectfully disagree and keep it moving because it does get tiring. It does wear you out. I'm to the point now where I don't want to have someone else's ignorance ruin my mood, right? I believe it was Margaret Thatcher who said, you got to give someone permission to ruin your mood. And I'm, I'm not doing that anymore. So, um, but if somebody does want to engage in the dialogue and they're open to hearing about facts, statistics, history, objective things that really happened. And if they're willing to understand the pattern, I'll sit down and talk to you from 1619 to 2001, how these things repeat happening, what systemic racism is, and we can have a two-way dialogue about it. And uh, that's fulfilling, having that two-way open dialogue where communication is really happening. So. It's yeah. tiring, but you know what? There are a lot of things worth doing in this world that are tiring and maybe not fun. Might make people think you're the angry black guy, you know, but I don't care. I, I'm not the angry black guy. Uh, usually it's you're the ignorant white person who, who's uh, bringing this up. And when you're passionate about this stuff and um, it just gets that way sometimes, but it's no hate, um, no, no, I uh, mean, disrespect. I think it's just passion and I'm, I'm willing to continue to have those conversations as long as, you know, in teaching, we, we have really low standards, man. As long as one student gets it right. As long as that light bulb flickers and one student, it was worth it, you know, for the whole semester. 
once through the light bulb flicker, it'll make it worth it. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's a, it's an enlightened point of view, man. Um, because I, I, I get it. <laughs> I get just being tired and, and it's like when the question here is why do I have to continue this battle, right? That you, that you ask yourself, like, why is this on me? And I want to kind of, uh, shift that and, and ask Hannah that same, really the same conversation, um, you know, when we talk about leadership and uh, if you um, are not only have a certain point of view, but you're one of the people experiencing this, right? Um, is, it re- is it a responsibility to keep educating ignorant people? You know, do you have the right to just go, I just don't want, I'm exhausted. I don't want to deal with this anymore. Or is it a responsibility to just keep pushing? That's, that's a very good point. And I think um, this moment in history has shifted my perspective. I think I um, have always kind of led my life just very goal-oriented and focused on um, advancing my career, growing my business. And of course, I see how race and uh, inequity plays into my personal life as well as, well as the social injustices I see just happening every day. But I thought prior to this moment in time, I always separated the two. That was my personal opinions and my personal rage and my personal anger. And that had no place in the office when I was working. And that had no place in my business where, you know, I talk about pillows, right? And, and that's fine. I mean, we all have to do what we can to cope and move forward. And like Paul was saying, I don't want to be the angry black woman because I know what happens to those people. They don't get promoted. They don't get tagged for the next big project. Um, so I've never, I never was the one to take the stand. And then after this moment when the outcry came out of the community and everyone on social media, friends, were just sharing their just despair and sharing their personal experiences. It was really traumatic to live through, you know, I, I, I got flashbacks from literally my entire childhood onto my life in corporate America all these experiences and all the things I've seen where I stayed silent, you know, and it really haunted me. And that's, that's the feeling that the residual feeling I have now is I, I feel complicit and that does not sit well with me right now. So moving forward, I decided that I need to make my feelings and opinions heard. And when I hear and see injustices, I have to talk about it. I mean, I have a, I built my company in Ethiopia. I am an African. I am a black person. Race is tied into what I do. So there's no more separating the two. You know, there's no more living that disconnected life. It is my life. And I have to make it, make it part of what I do. Yeah. 
Uh, such a great point. Uh, specifically when you called yourself out, you made yourself accountable for whether it was true or not, you felt complicit. Um, you know, when, when, when you talk about uh, a person of color that is not standing up and saying something, feeling com as complicit as potentially the white person that is being ignorant, right? Um, you know, when we can understand and have these conversations, this is sort of what humanizes us, right? I'll tell you guys, and I've, I've given you both a little background on this, and I don't want to just be repetitive every week on this, but man, have I had my eyes open in the last couple of weeks. And it was just because I wanted to, I wanted to, to use my platform somehow to be able to help. I didn't know how best to help as a white man uh, in this situation. Uh, and I thought, Hey, I, I have a big mouth. I love talking. I have these platforms where I talk. Let me, let's talk, right? Uh, and so before I could talk, I wanted to make sure I had all my ducks in a row. I wanted to hear from black friends. I wanted to hear from white friends. I wanted to hear from social justice experts. I wanted to really get every angle. And it wasn't an easy couple of weeks, right? So, um, and I'm not, I don't want to say this in comparison to what you guys have gone through your whole lives. It wasn't an easy couple of weeks looking at not only the situation, but looking at myself too, right? Um, but where I finally started to reconcile some of my feelings in order to be able to get to a place where I, I can, I think I can make some sort of dent in, in helping um, was after I'd had all these conversations and after I learned a lot and educated myself as, by the way, a person that was already an ally and, and but I just wanted to learn more. Um, you know, it, it humanizes you. It, it, it parallels people's situations to each other as people understand each other better when they could just sit down and, and talk as humans, uh, learn about each other. Uh, Hannah, I was, I went into this rabbit hole of like when I was doing research on you guys today for for the interview of like somehow I started Googling Ethiopia after I was learning about your company and read this amazing article about how, um, oh, it was so cool. It was this article about comparing Wakanda in the Black Panther to saying that Ethiopia is the actual Wakanda of Africa minus the uh, Uber technology. Um, you know, these are things that I, I never would have seen Um you know, had I not had an open mind to, to just learn about other people. Um, and so I think that's the secret to to sort of forward progress here. I don't think there's an answer. It's silly to say there's an answer where we're going to eradicate systemic racism today and, and you know, this. Um, this is... This is a struggle. This has been hundreds of years of even getting to the point we're at today. And hundreds of years later, people are still being murdered and abused for no reason, you know? And so it's horrible to think that it may be that many years before we get to a point where this is over. Um, but where I want to take the conversation is on that progress, right? On um, viable ways to progress as a humanity. Um, I'll start with Paul. Paul, where do you think progress lies going forward? All righty. Great question. And by the way, I just, so many I just, different areas, right? I just asked you to find the answer to racism, right? by the way. So no pressure. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Easy question, right? All right. So, I mean, you've both said it, right? Systemic racism. So that means strategically implanted racism in many different areas that just overlap. And if you're targeting one person in education, housing, banking, employment, um, criminal justice, with just a little bit of racism in each of those areas, you're going to have them pinned down pretty good, right? So, um, yeah, easy question. How do we stop that? <laughs> I'll, I'll start with one of the most important ones, education. Education, I think, is key. Uh, there are too many people in this country taking at full value of what they are taught in the school system and they run with it. And we, we already know education is very whitewashed. One of my favorite quotes from Achiba is until lions get their own historian, the history of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. So we need to totally revamp education system. And it's gonna start with just the country acknowledging what they did to the Native Americans and what was done to black people in this country. And once we can acknowledge that and start writing honest educational uh, curriculum, that's not saying, hey, um, 28 days, we'll talk about black people and black history started with slavery. And there is a school in Texas where uh, I think it was McGraw-Hill textbook said, Black people immigrated to the United States. Um, other things that, you know, Black people came over here as employees. I mean, the, the whitewashing of the truth is just ridiculous. So we just got to be honest and um, speak the truth, acknowledge it, and stop trying to cover it up. I think what's happening right now in the United States, no more dirt can fit under the rug that this country has been sweeping um, the dirty work under and a cat five tornado just blew that rug out of the window and it's all exposed right now. And that's due to 400 years of uh, covering it up. And that's why when we have these conversations with people who just don't know, it's because the little breaststroke of history they've had, it, it befounds them and they don't believe it because it sounds so ridiculous. It sounds ridiculous to tell you that black troops in World War II who came back home were lynched, captured at the train station because they took the train back home from a war in Europe that they survived. Someone told them to take the uniform off. They refused and they got lynched in uniform. I mean, you, you tell people this stuff happened and they just don't believe it because they've never been exposed to it. So I'd say the first thing is we got to acknowledge it, acknowledge the history. Once we can acknowledge that, I think that could start breaking down some of the barriers we have to moving forward and solving it. But if we first step in solving a problem is always acknowledging the problem, right? Identifying the problem and acknowledging the problem. And I don't think this country has acknowledged the problem. And until that happens and we stop trying to sweep it under the rug. I don't know how well we'll be able to get to any solution for any 
multiple uh, facets of racism. I'm just talking about education right now. There's a million of them, right? Yeah. Um, I want to, I want to grow on, on this with two, two things. So first question is, um, and, and this is an honest question. How old were you when you, uh, first heard about black wall street? Hmm. Uh, I think, um, it's funny. I can't remember the age, but I can tell you it was told as the Tulsa race riots. That's what the historian that glorifies the hunter sold it as. And then once I started reading, I'm actually in Oklahoma for the third time in my career. My aircraft is stationed here. So I was here 03 to 07, 11 to 14. I just came back in 19. So, um, and I have friends from Tulsa and they really taught me about what the riot was. I've been up to uh, Green Street in Tulsa. Um, however, when I started reading and just getting sucked into history to, to learn the truth, that was not a riot. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I can't give you the exact age, George, but I do know it was when I found out about it, it was told it was a riot. It was, right. it was a massacre. So I was <clears throat> last, I was last week years old when I, when I first <laughs> really in my entire life heard about it. Uh, and, and let me guess, but was it because of the presidential rally that he scheduled on Juneteenth? Nope. It was, no. it was the panel last week in, in part two of this series. Uh, okay. It was by two 17 year old students <laughs> taught me about black wall street. Um, wow. and, and guess what they were talking about? They were talking about that their initiative is to approach, um, schools and include uh, black history in education, not just 28 days mm -hmm. a year, the shortest month yep. uh, of the year, yep. which is very obvious. But um, George, real and, quick, it's yeah. funny you mentioned that um, because of that presidential rally that was scheduled on the anniversary of uh, on Juneteenth, Juneteenth, right, and in Tulsa the week after the rallies. I really am happy the White House did that because it gave so much publicity to those two events. And so, yeah, I was being the tour guide again, teaching people. People are like, hey, what is Juneteenth? What's the big deal about this Juneteenth? So I got to teach people about the fact that um, slaves were freed in 1865. However, in Texas, no one told them for two years. And they didn't find out until June 1867 that they were really free but they're being taken advantage of. So we created a holiday. So that's really our emancipation. And then Black Wall Street, we got to teach so many people about that who had no idea why people were so upset about Trump scheduling his first rally in Tulsa on that date. So um, bad publicity, but hey, it got the tour guide out. Well, the, the point I was trying to make was, um, you know, and, and I'm not ashamed to say that last week was the first time I had heard about it because I think that mm -hmm. speaks to exactly what you're speaking about with education. Mm -hmm. 
right? And and I have an open mm-hmm. mind, man. Like wh- whatever history is, I want to learn it, right? <laughs> but this is what I was mm-hmm. taught, uh, and it took two seventeen-year-olds to open my eyes to that. <laughs> and I and I was spent like two days reading about it in the past week, which was amazing. And now you mentioned Juneteenth, another situation. Do you know when the first time I heard about Juneteenth was? It was about four years ago. Uh, you know, most of us on this planet have iPhones, right? And so the Apple calendar um, automatically puts in like federal holidays and all that kind of stuff. And one day, like three or four years ago, it's June. And I'm like, what in the hell is Juneteenth? And I look it up and I'm like, I have never, ever <laughs> heard of this before. That's that's a problem. And, and what I want to... What I wanted to get to, um, and I'll, I'll shift this question to, to Hannah, um, you know, when you talk about ignorant people, and I'm okay with using that word, um, you know, it, take a person uh, like me who's, I, I'm, I'm trying to be honest and, and, and authentic in all, th- all situations and transparent um, with what I know, what I don't know, what I'm, what I'm trying to learn and uh and so on. Um, the fact that, you know, me, a, a college educated person has never heard of these things up until recently. That's systemic, right? That's, that's built into the system. Um, how much blame, right? Can you put on ignorant people when it's built to teach them a, a version of history that may have not happened? Right. I think, um, it's funny, actually, Paul is helping me have a lot more empathy with a lot of my white friends. You're, you're helping me see that um, perhaps it is easy to deny systemic racism since it's never talked about, it's never taught, and um, as white people, it's not experienced. And so the rest is left as a conversation between two people and it's just plausible deniability. It's just, it's easy to be ignorant. And I think the thing that separates the allies from everyone else is openness. Just not coming to a situation with your mind made up already. And those are the people that I like Paul, do no longer have conversations with because it's not a dialogue. It is, let's argue, you know? Yeah. So, yes, uh, you know, we all kind of learn these things late together, even me. Um, but it's the openness and willingness to learn and understand and have an open mind. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go back to the same question that I had asked Paul. Uh, when we talk about forward progress, when we when we talk about, man, I, I want to say, what can this world look like in a year? But realistically, I'm going to ask you, um, what can this world look like in 100 years? Um, what's, what's Hopefully in 100 years, we'll all be light brown and this won't be an issue anymore. You know? There you go. <laughs> um <laughs> Because, you know, it's, I think that's an impossible question for me to answer. It's, it's too big. It's too, you know, I'm not like Paul. I don't, I don't have my nose in the books 
having history as a guide, for me, it's, you know, I'm a very, I'm a business owner. I like to focus on one thing and do what I can in, in a few areas, which is what I've chosen to do. Um, and as far as the broader issue, it's funny. So one of the initiatives, I know we're going to get to this, but I'll just touch on it now. One of the initiatives I'm working on is to get some accountability in the interior design community. And I've been reaching out to all of my old bosses and all the old principals I used to work with, just talking to them about this uh, initiative. And, you know, I'm just talking about diversity and inclusion. And one of my bosses who I, you know, I have a good mentorship relationship with said, all right, so but how are we going to address the broader issues of racial inequity? And I said, you mean like, not killing black people on the street? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know me not being scared to stand in front of my own house, you know, because I, I recently moved to upstate New York where there's a lot of Confederate flags for some reason and uh, even white supremacy flags. You know, I, I, I don't even know how you begin to get somebody to really see what's happening that is is just turning a blind eye well I, I think i think what you're saying speaks to a lot of um the sentiment out there right now with people that don't know um what to do right now uh whether you're black white brown um you know they don't know what that next step is and so of course there's the reactionary part of it and and so um, called for, right? Like when, if somebody's angry, be angry. Like you have every right to be angry. Uh, but when we talk about progress, if you're sad, you're sad, right? But when we talk about progress, we talk about how can we in our circle of influence create a change within this thing that matters to us. And so I want you to, to, to further uh, speak about what you were talking about with your initiative because Hey, you know, you and I are both in the business world. Uh, I yeah. also am in the, the public speaking world and, and the podcasting world. And so I want to use these as tools. But you and I had a conversation, Hannah, and, and I know Paul can speak to this as well because he's a he's a business person. This dude's been a real estate investor for I, I can't even remember how long, probably since we've been out of college. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I know that as much as I can talk my face off we can have the most enlightening, incredible conversation right now. Um, you know, we'll reach some people, you know, and, and if we can have one person have a change of heart, then great. It was worth it. Um, but in my opinion, where the power lies is where the money lies. Right. And that's, that's business. That's what we do for a living. I know for a fact that when I put my business hat on as the owner of multiple companies, um, and I know my circle of influence in that community, which, by the way, is not as thoughtful of a community as this community is, right? We're talking about, you know, within my public speaking and podcasting and coaching that I do, oh, everybody's amazing, you know? But the people that actually can move the needle in the business world are not. <laughs> They're not necessarily all amazing people, but they hold the power. And so when we talk about our circle of influence, Hannah, um, what can we do as 
whether we're artists, we're business people, we're, we're medical professionals, whatever the case is, um, I feel like that's where we can move the needle within our own circle of influence. So talk about your initiatives more. Uh, tell me, let's do this. So it, it's funny that, that you say that. I, I think everybody that has a job can do something, right? You can, you can start where you work if that's, if you're looking for something to do. So I, um, my good friend and I are starting an equity council for the Interior Design Association of New York. And the goal of this council is to have a series of guidelines that the top firms in architecture and interiors of New York should follow as guidelines. And they're going to focus on aspects of diversity as well as um, education and workshops firm-wide around implicit and uh, other forms of bias and workshops around how social justice and architecture and real estate and urban planning are linked. Um, um, and we're just in the process of developing what this council will be. Um, but sort of until that council gets up and going, I've also used my, so I have now 28,000 followers on Instagram. So I said, okay, how am I going to use this platform This that came all of a sudden um, to do what I can in the field of design? I drafted up, so I saw that some other um, people had start, drafted templates for how to initiate change. So I drafted my own email template for professionals in the design industry to reach out to their leaders, to their CEOs and say, okay, here are the three things that we, our firm needs to do to address racial inequity in design. So I, I drafted this template. I put it on my website, resources of workshops, um, articles, and I geared one section for employees and one section for leadership. And I, you know, I blasted it on, on social saying, go here, do something today, write an email from Monday morning to tell your firm that you want things to change. And, you know, it's the least I can do with this newfound platform that I have now. And so even just by voicing your concern in that way, you are doing something, right? If you just did that one thing within your workplace, let's say 10 people from social actually sent an email. Maybe th those people end up transforming the lives of 20, 30 individuals that will then get hired, that may get an internship, that may... Um, somehow benefit from a small shift that a few people made. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Uh, Paul, same thing to you, my friend. Uh, you, you live in a couple of different worlds, right? Um, the military, um, uh, you know, you, you are an active real estate investor and not only are you a real estate investor and a business person, but you, uh, you use those platforms for your outreach, for activism. You have your scholarship fund, uh, I know um, with your fraternity, you are super, super involved and you guys do some incredible things. Um, where does that power lie in your circle of influence? Another great question, George. And I totally agree with everything Hannah said. Small changes, small actions, 
people are watching. People are watching. And when you're quiet, they're comfy. But when they find out, hmm, he or she is actually speaking up, you really might hit that nerve or they might start paying a little more attention to you, what you're doing, what your causes are. Um, I've been bombarded by about every company that I have an account with over the past two weeks with a statement. And I'm like shocked, right? I saw a post on social media the other day. It's like companies are acting like black people just came out last week, you know? Uh, <laughs> no, we've been around, man. This stuff's been happening for a long time, but it's just like, wow, people are actually might be starting to get it, you know? Uh, maybe it's due to all those initiatives like Hannah was talking about where companies are hiring more diversity and put more diversity at the decision-making table where people are saying, hey, we, we need to do something. Our clients, our followers, they're humans, and we need to show people we're humans too and we're not just taking their money and stashing it and uh, make that connection and let people know we care, we're connected to the environment, right? Businesses don't operate in a silo, so you have to uh, connect with your environment. It's uh, genuine, especially when it comes off genuine, right? Yeah. And, um, so, and of course, when you're already passionate about it, whether you have a business or not, that makes it much easier because um, you are your business and it's like Hannah said, it's hard to separate the two. And um, so, yeah, it's a great platform for when you do build up that following and people do know you're genuine and you have credibility and you really care about these issues and they're already following you and it makes it that much easier to get, get that word out and possibly get some people to make those small changes. Yeah, and I'll take a moment here just to say to our audience, I said this last week, um, you know, I invite anybody listening that is activated to reach out to me. I will connect you with Paul. I will connect you with Hannah. I will connect you with the guests from last week. We had people last uh, Jasmine Rashid. Uh, she's incredible. So she's, you know, originally from, from New York as well, and she's Oakland-based now. She works for an impact investing firm uh, that aligns um, companies and individuals' uh, investments with their philanthropic views. And so they're fighting the good fight in so many other ways. And I see with that, she was telling me a story about how, hey, if, if an organization, um, I think one of the fights they were fighting is that um, they wanted to defund private prisons and so there was an initiative that they had put out to banks that these large organizations were dealing with, that they had a lot of money in, that they approached these banks going, yeah, if you don't fire your private prison clients, we'll walk, right? Yep. Hey, money talks, you know? Yep. Um, if something like that happened on a major level, like a major, major level, um, you know, to be able to have that power of pull funding, pull and pull pull money, pull investments uh, from organizations that don't align. Yep. You better be you better be damn sure that you'll see some change there real, okay. real quick, real, real quick. Um, and so th this is why I know that there's power in that. And so anybody that is activated right now, interested, that wants to reach out, 
reach out to me, DM me. I will hook you up with these people. I will, uh, you know, one of my thoughts here is that I would love to start a, um, you know, a, a think tank regarding diversity with the people that I've spoken with. You know, I, I have, uh, um, you know, besides my consulting firm, my management consulting firm, I have a think tank organization within that firm that does work for nonprofits and, and for educational facilities. I have no problem starting a think tank, a multicultural, multi-ethnic think tank where we actually deal with diversity issues like this on, on a big level, man. Whatever it takes to activate people, uh, reach out, you know. This is the first step, you know, uh, the fact that you're listening to this right now and you're opening your hearts, you're opening your ears, finally, um, that's a big deal. You know, that that's that's step one here. Um, I want to ask you guys uh, on, a, on a more personal level. Um, some of the conversations last week were really, really cool, and I can't help but look at, um, you know, last week we had uh, three professionals in their mid twenties on, uh, who had started an incredible, um, uh, peaceful protest uh, a couple of weeks ago that just went so well. It was a thousand people there. It was, um, amazing, amazing step towards progress. Um, and then we had what, and only because they were from the same school, all of them, we had their counterparts, uh, their 17 year old counterparts. And it was so cool watching this panel. Cause I'm watching, these three mid twenties professionals and then looking at them like seven years earlier. Right. Uh, and the progress that the 17 year olds had made the, tw the mid twenties guests, uh, Malik and Sandra and Jasmine recognized that they were not on that level when they were 17. You know, the, the, the moves that these, uh, that these kids were making, you know, the, the stand that they were taking, um, was incredible. And so the future, is so bright in terms of that. But now I look at us, right, the old folks here, uh, from that same school, by the way, all of us, um, and we're all around 40 right now, um, and we've, we've lived some life, all of us, you know? Um, and so I'm going to ask you one of the same questions that I asked them, and I'm so curious to hear your answers. I'll start with uh, Paul on this one. So, Paul, um, Today's today, and a month ago was a month ago. How do you feel today versus a month ago in regards to everything going on right now with George Floyd's murder, with, with Black Lives Matter, with the, the issue at hand? Nothing has changed. What's happened a month ago, I mean... Ahmaud Arbery was murdered in broad daylight on 23 February. No arrests made until May. Rihanna Taylor was killed in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. About two weeks later after the arrest for Ahmaud Arbery, while she slept in her own apartment. And then about maybe a week, Memorial Day weekend, George Floyd was killed and Hannah mentioned earlier that she's still trying to process George Floyd like all of us were trying to process that and what happens in Atlanta Rayshawn Brooks get shot and killed what three days ago um, so 
And I could fast forward back before March and we'll still have another string of events that's going. So like I said, if you are history, there's really, this is not new. <laughs> I do say this feels different, what's happening right now, because like I went to the Black Lives Matter protest here in Oklahoma City and there's so many white people there. I'm asking them, are y'all going to the protest? And they're like, yeah, we are. I'm like, oh, okay. So I started following them because they knew where it was, the, the meetup spot. But it was incredible. Um, we were actually outnumbered by our allies at this protest. And that was pretty amazing. Um, that was very cool to see. It was a peaceful protest. A couple thousand people, there were speakers, and we all walked to the state capitol and met with like five other groups that were protesting on the state capitol steps. And um, so, do I feel different? No. However, I am noticing some differences. And, and, and then there are protests happening in Germany. Uh, I saw this in Ghana. Protests in New Zealand today, the English Premier League, I'm a Chelsea fan, by the way, they just started and the entire league took the players' names off the back of their jerseys and it says Black Lives Matter on their jerseys. So you would think I'm lying if I told you that was going to happen a couple years ago, right? Yep. English Premier League, one of the most famous uh, sports leagues, period, in the world, right? And um, so the, the things we're seeing... Uh, I don't know if you guys are seeing on your timelines how many people have been fired and apologized in the last two weeks, right? That's right. By the way, please, people, stop apologizing. I don't need to hear that ingenuous BS. Stop apologizing. You're mad because you got caught and you're losing your job. Sorry, sidetrack. So we're seeing a lot of new things. That's great. Uh, NASCAR got rid of Confederate flags at NASCAR races. Holy crap, really? So nothing's changed in a sense. However, there's definitely a change in the response. Hannah, same question to you. I would say I certainly uh, feel different. I do. I think, um, and because, so, so I think there's a big difference between how Paul went through his life in the world and the way I went through my life in the world. You know, I, I didn't call it out. I didn't acknowledge it. I didn't make my voice heard. And that's problematic. That's before we got on here, I talked about if you're, if you're a leader, you should be completely aligned with the things that you believe and the things that you speak. And whenever there's any kind of misalignment, it shows up in your life and it, it shows up as, you know, conflict. It shows up as not showing up. Um, and so I've had a change of heart and I will never not show up anymore, you know? And so because I've experienced this shift, I've experienced this change of heart, it makes me believe that other people are experiencing this thing too. And most importantly, it doesn't matter what black people are doing right now. It matters what white people are doing right now because that's what's going to make things shift, right? Um, and so 
there is a shift happening. I don't know how far it'll go, but things are things are changing. At the very least, they're being talked about, yeah. which I find heartening. Um, I, I think you guys would be interested to hear the answers from last week, and it was uh, a resounding similarity there, um, particularly our guest uh, Malik Sila last week, uh, one of the organizers of the local protest here. Um, he said to me that he doesn't feel any different, but people are finally listening. That was the major difference. Um, and so I, I, I agree with that sentiment, um, you know, from, from my perspective as a, as a white privileged male. Right. Um, but I will say Hannah, that I want to, uh, I want to discuss that the la- one of the points that you made there, um, because I do feel in this very moment, right, and I'm speaking to this as a leader, because I, as a leader, I'm going to put my, my coaching hat on for my leadership coaching, um, you know, division of my company, you know, we really teach leadership um, in that leading alongside people as opposed to leading in front of people is really the, the best way to to create change, right? Whether you're in management, uh, whether you're leading in your community and activists, whatever the case is. Um, and so this is something that I want to address here. I, I was told by, by a good friend of mine who's in social justice, um, he wanted me to be accountable here. And he said to me specifically, which really it, it keeps ringing in my head with every question I ask. He said, don't go on there. Um, now this is a trained moderator, by the way. He said, don't go on there and go on there and be like the all pro everything uh, black white guy, right? You need to have the real conversation, right? You need to have the real conversation from all sides. And so I'm, I'm attempting to, I'm hope I'm doing a good job of this today. Um, but I, I do want to say when you say Hannah, that um, it's not about what black people do right now. It's about what white people do. I think, you know, as a white person, I also, I'm, I'm the type of person that's going to have these conversations, uncomfortable or not. I want to ask you how you feel, how you think I can help right now. Not everybody's going to do that. Some people are going to take cues. Um, and so I do want to ask you what you feel about, you know, a person of color standing up right now, how their voice is being put out there to me is so important. And I want to get your take on that. Paul mentioned before, you know, he doesn't want to be the angry black person. Um, I will tell you right now from what I've seen, and this is primarily on social media, um, the people out there that are angry and again, have every right to be angry. Uh, I don't think that social media is the platform for that. Um, always, um, because some of these voices have now become white noise to the point where they're causing arguments. Um, they're to the point where, um, it, it comes off as an instigation type of tactic, right? Um, and so do you feel that there needs to be accountability with how, uh, you know, a black person today stands up and voices themselves in order to lead and teach right now? Absolutely not. I don't think that should be policed. I don't think that should be a topic of conversation. And I find it so offensive that that's even the discussion, you know? It's like when people, when the media covers the looting as Mm -hmm. opposed to the protests, it's just a red herring. 
you know, I think people should be able to discuss these issues the way they feel, you know, and express it however, whether it's instigating or not. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, you know, I've, I follow a lot of these activists that are very vocal and there are very um, direct and maybe unkind, but, you know, that, I think that's what it takes in some instances. And, and part of, you know, part of, the, part of the discomfort that white people have with these voices is that, you know, they don't, they don't want to hear these things at all. And so nobody's going to feed you racism kindly. And if that's what you want, then, then you're not really in it. Then don't bother. I, one of the people that I follow, she kind of reposted the conversation that they had with, she had with this white woman that was calling her out for being too aggressive to, no, 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 actually this, this person posted a video of one of her friends um, kind of speaking on issues. And this white woman replies saying, he sounds so angry. He's making me feel frightened. Why don't you speak like this person? And she posted another. And that inherently in and of itself is racist. You know, the man that was speaking was dark skinned and we haven't even gotten gotten into colorism yet. But that's just that's a whole part of this anti-blackness, right? The whole problem with this is black men specifically, black people in general, are perceived as dangerous. That's part of the, what this brutality and racism is about, right? And so we should be able to express anger without being feared. And so if, if, if you're an ally and if you want to listen, you have to listen in which all ways this narrative comes out. Because I know that was part of my challenge pre this era, I didn't want to make people feel uncomfortable. That's what kept me silent, keeping people comfortable. And I was beginning this racial trauma uh, work, well, well, actually it was a podcast about, uh, from this man who, who gives workshops on racial trauma. And he talks about things like white nervousness. And I hadn't even heard the term before, but I knew the second I heard that, I knew what he was talking about. You know, we all went to Farmingdale High School. Like, that was an experience in and of itself. That was my first indoctrination into what it meant to be black in America. You know, that's when I was socialized and became aware of what what was thought of me who I was and who I wasn't. Um, and that's, that's actually one of the big reasons I wanted to do this podcast, you know, because in, so in these past few weeks, I, I really did have flashbacks of all aspects of my life and Farmingdale was a big part of that. And part of me wanted to kind of reckon with that and talk about that and address that whole era of my life that was so uncomfortable as a black person, you know? 
Um, and especially, you know, being an African and maybe not looking like what other students thought an African should look like. And just that whole, <laughs> and all of, you know, and there were always incidents, right? There was always the N-word being used, uh, comments. And let's not, uh, not address the fact that Long Island is one of the most segregated places in the country. Yep. So, yeah. <laughs> well, well I, I, you know, I, I see with this, um, with this particular part of the conversation, you're, you're super activated, which is what this thing is about. Um, I'm going to throw out there, uh, something that I heard from a friend of mine in, in one of these conversations, uh, that talked about the rioting and, and everything that was going on. And of course, you know, um, there's byproducts of, of the riots, right? And so if you look at the byproduct of the riot as what the riot's about, you're never going to get it. You have a bunch of people that are angry and rioting and then crazy shit starts happening. You know, that's not what it was about. Right. Uh, and so he said to me, um, again, it's just one of those things that just keeps sticking out of my mind. Uh, and this is a peaceful dude, right? Said to me, George, if people look at these riots and of course the subsequent looting and, and all that stuff that happens, um, he said, look, I'm, I'm against violence. Of course, you know, that that's, uh, we're, we're saying that from the get go, but he goes, but if people don't understand why the rioting is happening, why that anger is there then you just don't get it, you know? And um, I think it's tough, and this isn't an, ex an excuse. I think it's tough. Um, you know, I had to have dozens of conversations, um, you know, before I can begin to understand how, you know, a, a person might feel in the situation. And, and this is already from an empathetic person uh, that, that, yeah that is an ally. And so delving into it, even now seeing you activated with that conversation, you know, that speaks to me that, that tells me something. It teaches me something. Right. Um, and, and this is what we want to get through to people, you know, um, Paul, same, you know, uh, uh, same thing for you. Uh, I, um, you know, when we communicate as human beings, there's going to be anger, there's going to be, um, sadness, there's going to be all kinds of emotion that comes out and, in these moments of emotion, um, sometimes people don't understand the feeling behind the emotion. They're only seeing the emotion on the surface, uh, but they're not getting what that true emotion is about. Um, what's the best way to communicate right now with people without, you know, I, I'm asking you to put your tour, gu tour guide hat on yet again, but what's the best way to communicate yep. with people? Um, I, I think I'll always base everything on history. We talked about the having the historian to write a true story and I always glorify the hunter, right? So the Europe and the United States had Nelson Mandela as a terrorist. He was a terrorist, according to Europe and the United States. Um, Marcus Garvey, CIA had this program where they attacked the credibility of any black leader that stood up and created a narrative 
to make them a bad person, um, attack their character, and possibly get them in jail or kill them. Uh, they did it to Dr. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. The narrative on him was he hates white people. He didn't hate white people. He preached self-defense, right? Based on history since 1619, he was perfectly within his mind to say, I will defend myself at, by all means necessary because history shows these people have been killing black people since 1619. But the narrative was Malcolm X was all about hate. Fast forward, Colin Kaepernick. He does a silent protest. But those historians rewrote the narrative to the flag and disrespecting uh, the military. I'm telling you, I've been in the military for, it'll be 19 years in August. Can you believe that? And I felt not one iota of disrespect from Colin Kaepernick and his best. However, no one wants to talk about why he's doing it. All they want to do is reframe the narrative to um, what he's doing or to the flag or the anthem. So fast forward to these protests and they are trying to stare the narrative at looters and protesters who we've got buku proof that there are distinct three groups involved here. We got the protesters, we've got looters, that we got rioters slash agitators and opportunists mixed in there. And there's plenty of proof that these people aren't affiliated with Black Lives Matter. They're just out there trying to create a false narrative or give the media ammo on these narratives. So I would say, like you said, stop focusing on the outcomes and focus on the root causes and stop letting these distractors get you away from the root cause. And like you guys said, people will find ways to tap dance around the root causes because that's where the tough conversation has, the tough solutions lie. So it's easy to focus on the riots and the protesters and not talk about why they're out there. And I'll say it like this, I don't agree with what they're doing. However, I totally understand why they're doing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, guys, as we, as we start to wind this thing down right now, uh, just know that I'm, I want to give each of you uh, space at the end of this to, to say whatever else you want to say, anything that we didn't cover. Um, but, you know, I, I, I try not to do things in a conventional way. This podcast is about unconventional leadership. And for me, the success I've had in, in business and, and other things that I've done in my life has been about sort of flipping the narrative and, uh, and doing things in, in a different way that others don't do. And so this is a panel, but I want to sort of make this an unpanel. Um, and, and I'm going to do that primarily because, um, we don't have right now equal representation on this panel as I would have liked, um, initially when I was planning this. And so I want to flip this right now and give you guys the opportunity to ask me what you want to ask. I want to give you guys an opportunity to speak to me as, as a white man, as a, as a business owner, as a man of privilege, um, you know, uh, I, I want to have that conversation as well so that this episode is balanced out because I'm, I'm first of all, I'm so unbelievably thankful for you guys being here. And I think this was an incredible conversation. I, I couldn't have imagined this being this good, honestly. Um, you know, things happen for a reason, right? Um, but yeah, I, I do want to give you guys space to do that. So I'll open it up. Um, you know, if you guys want to um, sort of moderate this and, and talk to me right now. 
I have so many questions for you. Shoot. All right. So, well, first I just want to start off by saying what we uh, talked about prior to getting on the on the call, which was, um, well, you mentioned that, that you're you wanted to start this series so that you can reach out to your peer group that may be kind of in between having extreme opinions and just be sort of maybe in the middle or on the fence, sympathetic, um, but not not sure. And you wanted to reach out to them. Um, so in response to that, I told you that the best thing would have been is to have a bunch of white people <laughs> up here talking about these issues, having a real dialogue heart to heart. Um, and so, well, that didn't happen because of what you mentioned when, um, when we started, which I think is a huge disappointment, right? So I want to know what makes you so recept receptive? What makes you so open? What do you think it is about you, your upbringing, your life experiences that makes you a fervent ally? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a great question because I think it'll speak to um, my peers, like you said, and, and maybe help open their eyes a little bit. Um, I'm going to tell you specifically because we're all from the same town, right? Um, I went to um, the one elementary school in, in, uh, in our hometown that was the most integrated, the most diverse, right? Um, East Memorial. And so of, of the four elementary schools in, in the town we grew up in, um, I was in the school, and obviously Paul was my classmate. Um, did you go to the same school, Anna? No. You didn't, yeah. Um, and so I was in the elementary school that was the most integrated that, um, you know, when you looked at our class, although still lopsided, of course, um, it was pretty diverse, right? Um, and so growing up on that side of town, right, um, being uh, the borderline between Farmingdale and, and Amityville, um, Amityville, a predominantly black um, population. Um, during my childhood, uh, it was more of the norm. The diversity was, was part of the norm in, in my childhood. Um, take it a step further, there was a shopping center right behind my, my parents' house where I grew up. You know, the big, uh, a big shopping center. And I worked in a deli from the age of 12 to through college for, for like a good 10 years, I worked in this deli and our demographic or customer demographic was primarily black customers, um, working class people that lived just over the other side of 110 um, that would be in every day as well as, you know, white customers from, uh, from Farmingdale. Um, and I think that reflex right? That reflex of danger. Um, when a white person sees a black person, that's been sort of just ingrained in their DNA to have that reflex of fear. Um, if you're, you know, walking down a street and, and there's a, a black male walking behind you, the reflex of a white person is going to be fear. And that's, it's scary. It, it's scary that that's a reality. Um, I think because I had such a diverse childhood, I worked in a place where every single day working, 
you just realize like these are working class people like my parents, right? And so this is just my reality now. This is where I live. These are people that I shake their hands just like I shake my white customers' hands, right? Um, I don't know. I, I think that's my my only real explanation. I, I've always tried to be uh, an open minded guy, and in the in the last you know five, six, seven, eight years that I've had more of a platform uh, to be a thought leader. Um, I think I've had the opportunity to you know, open my mind even more, um, and try and, you know, work on communication, help other people's communicate, help other people communicate in a better way. Um, that's really all I can think of, to be honest with you, that that's kind of, for me, um, growing up in that way. Mm-hmm. Can I ask a follow-up? Yeah. So what makes your white peers who are not allies like you know i had to do a round of unfriending this past two weeks and it's only my farmingdale friends and old classmates where these issues come up because after farmingdale is a lot more selective with my friendships yeah what explain that to me how do you get to a place as a white person where you just don't see the validity of Black Lives Matter. You don't see the, even have an ounce of, oh, let me tune in. Yeah. Can you speak for them? Yeah, I, I, I think I absolutely can. And, and I don't want any of what I'm saying um, uh, to, to seem like uh, th- this is an excuse for anybody. Um, there's a couple of things here. You mentioned before how Long Island is a super segregated area, right? Um, it's also a super conservative area when we look at politics. Um, we are in one of the toughest political climates, um, and I don't want to go super into that, but we're into we're in one of the toughest, most dangerous, most sensitive political climates we've ever been in as a country, um, and particularly when you have um, people that are of a conservative nature when it comes to politics feeling like they can't talk about their politics out loud because of how dangerous the political climate is right now. Um, It causes, um, I I think it it causes this this whole thing of like, I don't want to speak on any situation that the other side might agree with. Right. Because this is it's my right to believe in my politics. And, you know, we're we're mortal enemies now. And I'm talking about blue and red. Right. Um, So to take it a step further, since we're in a primarily conservative area, you have matters like the police, you have matters like politics. And I think the less educated people, the typically ignorant people are going to take a stance on their life beliefs based on where their political beliefs lie, right? So this is not, I don't talk about politics um, a lot, um, primarily as a, as a business owner. I, I've never wanted to do that. Um, but I will say that, you know, in the past, we're, we're going to talk pre-2016 right now because that's, that's where I want to talk about right now. Um, when we talk about political beliefs, I have always been 
um, conservative in terms of fiscal policy uh, policies and military stuff or whatever. When it comes to civil liberties, everything else, I'm, I'm super liberal when it comes to everything else. Um, 2016 became a line where if you are conservative, you are racist. If you are conservative, you are this or whatever. Um, and, and I don't necessarily uh, agree with all that. We're not talking about a candidate. We're talking about um, political beliefs, right? Um, and I think that's unfair to a degree. But um, I think people have aligned so much with their political beliefs and have decided that when they're not educated enough, they're just going to vote and agree with everything that their party uh, believes in. And so when it comes to this narrative now, this becomes very dangerous when we don't educate ourselves. It becomes very dangerous and people, and this, this speaks to the extremism that I am so against right now and fighting against, um, that not everything is black and white, no pun intended. There is a gray area. You can think this side for this item and this side for this item. Right, you can make your own choices. You don't have to agree with everything your party says. Um, and so, I, I think this is where a lot of, you know, the argumentative nature, the the strong beliefs in our area, come from. Um, because with the extremism right now, tied to political beliefs, tied to everything else, um, it's either black or white. It's either you love the police or you hate the police. Right. There's no middle ground. And, you know, not only are we in a conservative area, we're in a, a blue area, too. We're in a, a, a an area that is very pro-police. And so people take offense immediately as soon as you say one word about the police. And this is where we are. That, help, that helps shed light on it. Yeah. Paul, do you have a, a question? Um. Great questions, by the way, Hannah, and uh, like your honest, genuine responses, George. That was um, good dialogue. Thank I you. Yes, uh, George. A common response I get when trying to have a dialogue about these issues, it's um, usually, um, it's not my fault. My ancestors were racist. And that's a good one. Yeah. So what I usually say or what I've learned for reading, we're not mad at you for your ancestors racism. However, we just want you to mantle a system of racism that they created. You control and benefit from. That's what we want when you talk about accountability and allies, that's what we want. How do you deal with that, George, where people, maybe in your circle, your followers, what are you doing to inspire them to understand that, yes, you didn't do it. However, you've been benefiting from it your whole life and you can't act like you don't see it because you're living it every day. It's not just us living this, right? Someone's benefiting from it. Um, have you been able to shed that light on your peers who are benefiting from a system that they are not willing to acknowledge? 
Yeah, so that that's a it's a great question. It's a two prong answer for me. Uh, the the first part is going to be that this is the work that I've been doing for the last few weeks in order to reconcile these thoughts for myself. Right. Um, I immediately my reflex immediately was one of um, I don't want to. It was not an anti-white thing. Um, it was an empathy reflex, right? And so it becomes this thing of when you're empathetic of a situation, you're sympathetic with a situation because you're an empathetic person, um, you, you try and, and put yourself in that person's shoes, right? You try and put yourself in an entire race's shoes, and it's not possible to do that. Um, you take the facts, right? You take the conversations that you have, and you sort of formulate an opinion with how you feel. And so something I had to reconcile was that very thing that you asked me. Um, my stance is, no, I will not be shamed for being a white person, right? But the fact that I know that that's not what you're doing, that's where, that's where the nuance lies there of understanding. Um, I think this speaks to this whole thing that I'm trying to, to fight for in that... Um, uh, having people listen so that they can understand definitions. They can understand what privilege actually means, what they can understand, what black lives matter actually means. These things to me are, I think they're the impetus of 95% of the fights that I see on social media. It's that somebody takes offense. A white person takes offense immediately when the word privilege is used going like, you don't know what I went through. And it's like, were you black? No? Okay. So I know exactly what you went through, right? Um, no, do I know about your personal situations? No, that's not what we're speaking about in this very moment. We're talking about being white in America versus being black in America. Um, last week, for anybody that, that listens, check out last week's episode, episode 128. Uh, Sandra and Jasmine and Malik tell this great story um, that really sheds light on... Uh, uh, the definition of, of Black Lives Matter. Um, great, great story. You have to hear it from them. But um, so specifically here, I have decided that I want to make sure that when I'm having these conversations that I don't want to be shamed for being white, just like I won't shame a person for being black. This is how we were born, and there's nothing wrong with being white or black, right? But addressing the fact that Hey, you know, I get how it's been for the last 400 years. My eyes are open. I completely understand. I don't, I can't ever be in your shoes, but I see from the outside. I've opened my eyes. I understand what's going on. I want to fix this. Um, and so it's the understanding of words. It's the understanding of definitions. It's being able to listen to people that makes me, the type of person that won't get offended uh, when I hear this. Have I been offended before uh, in the past when I didn't understand what the word privilege was? You know, five years ago, I might have said like, hey, you know, you weren't in my shoes growing up. You don't know what it means. But now I, I truly understand. Um, and, and you know, when somebody says, no, all lives matter in response to black lives matter, it's the same thing where you're going like, no, you don't, you don't get you don't get this. You don't understand that 
Black Lives Matter does not mean that all lives don't matter. We're not talking about all lives today. We're talking about black lives today, right? Um, and, and so being able to, to sort of understand on that level and trying to educate people on that level, that for me is what has um, sort of changed that narrative for me, if that makes sense. It does. Thanks. I appreciate um, your candor. Yeah, we, we do. Oh, I, 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 I will definitely listen to that podcast from last week. I'm curious to hear that discussion on privilege. And you said you guys defined it. I'll throw another definition of privilege out that I really like. Uh, my fraternity brother, um, Ben Crump, he's actually a, a lawyer. His family's a lawyer. But uh, he said uh, being privileged is being born on third base but thinking you hit a triple. I love that. That drives it home. That, um, and where you get these offended responses because once again, they think life started when they were born and they don't know the context that goes behind why things are the way they are. So I highly encourage people, learn your country. And you will see that there are a couple trends the last 400 years why black lives matter yeah yeah unbelievable i i, I want to shout malik uh, silal again from last week gave a great analogy he said uh he was talking about his journey he dude is an mba uh you know just getting his career started in an entry-level position but had to fight a lot harder than some of his white counterparts to get to his position now he said to me he goes if you and i are running the 400 meter race and I have to start 100 meters behind you, but we tie at the end, who's the better athlete, right? It's like saying, no, we're equal athletes because of that, which doesn't make sense, you know? Um, and so I want to I wanna, um, I wanna wrap up now. I want to give you guys a space if there's anything else that you want to say. Um, and uh, I, I definitely, I want to say real quick that I would love to have you guys on uh, again, just as leaders individually, our typical episodes are so different than this. This is something that I felt like I needed to do. Um, yeah. But our, our typical episodes are just talking to unconventional leaders. Hannah, everything I read about you today is like incredible. Estella spoke so highly of you. And so that's why uh, I wanted to have you on. But I, I'd love to have you on as as a regular yeah, guest. Yeah. And same to you, Paul. You know, um, but yeah, awesome. I, want, I want to give you guys space. Um, you know, right now to say whatever you want to say to wrap this up and then we'll close out the episode. So we'll start with uh, Hannah. I just want Paul to give us a reading list of the essentials <laughs> on true American history. And uh, that would, I would think I personally would greatly benefit for that. That's amazing. That. Paul, if, if you can actually do that, I'll actually post it in the show notes on the podcast if you want. That would be awesome. I can definitely do that. And um, yeah. History is it's crazy. And speaking of books, James Baldwin, uh, he says to be a black person with any kind of consciousness about race in this country is to be in a constant state of rage. And um, another powerful quote, which lies true. I mean, we're not mad at any individual. It's just at what has been allowed to happen for this long. And uh, 
being treated like it's invisible. We saw just last week some of the highest officials in the country still don't think there's systemic racism in the police industry in the United States. And to be in that position of leadership and that that tone deaf, it's um, they're representing the country, and that that just shows a little of progress we need to make if people that get elected to those type of positions can still not see it. We're in trouble. And it's a great note to end on. Great note to end on. So uh, I want to thank you guys again, Hannah Gettichu, Dr. Paul Prosper. Uh, this was an incredible conversation. Um, I, I love that I, I came in here uh, and, and was able to elevate myself just through the conversation this was so enlightening in so many different ways uh you know sometimes you think that you're like all right i, I think i have a grasp on this and then you talk to two more people and you're like well shit <laughs> there's some stuff i didn't know you know and so i want i want to thank you guys for uh not only um you know helping to to further this and having this conversation out loud but you know your honesty um you don't have to do this you know i i completely understand um, how exhausting this can be, you know? Uh, and so I know you don't have to do this. And so I want you guys to know that as I think an expert in leadership, I'm going to call myself that, <laughs> that man, you guys are, you're way ahead of the pack. So, so I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for your time. Um, you know, proud to be from the same place as you guys, honestly, I really am. I know we have some work to do here, but, um, I'm hoping we'll get there. Thank you awesome. so much for opening up this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys, before I wrap up, I just want to say one quick thing. You know, today is part three of the How to Be a Human Being, the protest series on the LaunchCast. You know, I've made it no secret that I've I've opened up this platform to whoever wants to come on and speak. Uh, I've had personal conversations. I've had uh, outreach through email, through social media, you know, just trying to get different voices on this show. And the main thing is getting diverse voices on the show. And so all I want to say right now, this isn't about guilt. This isn't about shame. This is about standing up when it's time, when the conversation is happening. Um, you know, I, I've, I've done as much as I can to open this platform up. So all I'm saying right now is last week coming out of part two, I guaranteed a part three this week and I worked my ass off to fill this panel up. And I think we had an incredible, incredible conversation today. But it was tough to even get the two guests that we have on right now to have this conversation out loud. Okay, so what I just want to say real quick here is that I can't guarantee a part four next week. I would love to go to part four and part five. My original goal was to to do a five-part panel series and i would love to keep that going who's on this show you know that depends on you guys uh, i've talked to people i've offered this up uh, you know i want to keep offering this up but in the next few days i'm gonna have to make this decision on whether part four is the protest series or if we just go back to our regular show i don't want to for now i want to finish this series the right way the way i started it I'm leaving that up to you guys. Okay, so uh, catch us Monday morning 
Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitch, or Overcast. You know the deal. 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Every Monday morning we release. Guys, we'll see you next time. Launch sequence terminated. Into the black hole. Thanks for listening to the LaunchCast today. Please make sure to subscribe to this feed wherever podcasts are available. Follow me, George Andriopoulos, at Launchpad CEO on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And make sure to visit our website, guys, thelaunchcast.com. Looking forward to the next episode. See you soon, guys.